Welcome back to the Harvard Alumni for Education Shared Interest Groups Perspectives podcast. My name is Vanessa Berry, and I'm the president and a member of the SIGS founding team. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Gerard Robinson, a graduate of Harvard's Education School, former Secretary of Education for the state of Virginia, Education Commissioner of Florida, and the current Executive Director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity. Gerard, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to share your wisdom and knowledge with graduates of Harvard. Glad to be here and uh, good to spend time with you. Yeah. So what we've been doing on these podcasts is we are talking to alumni that have very interesting paths and having conversations to hopefully spur some ideas in other alumni, recent alumni, current students, uh, to envision possibilities for their own future in the field of education. So what I'd like to start with is a question about your own path post-Harvard, and if you can describe for our listeners how your career has evolved since graduating. Well, first of all, um, Harvard Graduate School of Education was a great place to be. I was there in 94, 95, studied education policy. Uh, I went there to really focus on the link between law and policy. And today, those two things are, are synonymous. But, you know, in the early 90s, the idea that lawyers could lead one way and educators could lead another one was kind of accepted as the norm. But I knew that somewhere there was a nexus that needed to be uh, uh, really observed. And so I finished in 95 and moved to New York City, um, became the executive director of a, a startup nonprofit organization that wanted to do something radically new, create a public, a publicly funded, free charter boarding school. Now, what's kind of unique about that is we wanted to create a charter school in New Jersey when the state did not have a charter law. Hmm. It was a part of the you know conversation, but there was no charter law. And then I had to go and raise money from philanthropists with no building in place. And I had to convince parents and students to send their children to a school in a state without a charter law or a building wow. but to sell an idea. And two years later, uh, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Charter School Academy opened, and the rest is history. So that was my first uh, post-Hugsy job. Wow. And how uh, can, can you describe your journey then from that role of starting, starting that up, something exciting in the education space, to your role serving as both Secretary of Education for the state of Virginia and the Education Commissioner for the state of Florida? When I decided to make education my career, and I made that decision in 1991, when I graduated from Howard University here in DC, returned to Los Angeles and became a fifth grade school teacher. I got interested in public policy because I wanted to know how is it that we were able to get pretty good results with about 30 to 60 kids in one school and maybe 10 blocks away, same neighborhood, same challenges, same opportunities, different results. So at some point, again, going to Hugsy, it was linking the policy and the law. And so I went to graduate school at uh, UVA uh, end up moving during the doctoral process to Marquette, well, to Milwaukee to work at Marquette University with Dr. Howard Fuller. And Dr. Fuller said, 
you've, uh, <clears throat> you, you're definitely committed to schools and to changing lives. Here's, the, you know, here's what you need to know. The future of American education, particularly urban education, is in Milwaukee. I said, really? He said, think about it. We're one of the largest school systems in America, uh, still one of the largest cities in the country. And 33% of our school-age children are not enrolled in traditional public schools. 33%. Now, this was before uh, Katrina and what happened in New Orleans, a big shift to 90-plus students in charter schools. Uh, it was before, uh, after the real big push in, in D.C. for uh, the three-sector initiative. But I decided, you know, I, I went. So I went to Milwaukee, um, worked there as a senior fellow, got involved in state and public policy, and uh, moved from there to become the president of Bale. And in 2010, received a phone call from, well, it was in 2009, from then uh, Governor-elect Bob McDonald in Virginia, uh, who said, you know, his staff said, you know, we've watched your, your work over the years. We've heard great things about the places you've been and the work you've done. Would you be interested in becoming Secretary of Education? I said, well, first of all, I'm a non-traditional candidate. I've never been a public school principal. I've never been a superintendent uh, or an area superintendent. I've never worked for a Department of Education. And they said, well, that's all true. If you're the secretary, guess what? You work with a lot of people who have that experience. But what we want is someone, A, who's got vision, number two, a track record of success, and three, who is uh, really untraditional. If we want a traditional, we could close our eyes and find someone. And that's not a slack on anyone who's taken the traditional route to become a state uh, chief. But they said, you've worked in enough cities in different places with different types of people that we think is fun. And so that was my path to those jobs. And what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in those roles, but then also what were some of the areas of opportunities in, in, in those roles? So in Virginia, Governor McDonald made it really clear in his state of the state address that he wanted to make Virginia a charter-friendly state. And charter school law dates back to 1998. In fact, I was in uh, at UVA at the time that uh, it had become law. At the time, we had two charter schools in the state. There was then and still now a tremendous pushback against charters for three reasons. Number one, they take money from traditional public schools. Uh, number two, they're not accountable. But the third one is the one that really made it tough then and now is the history of white segregated academies in Virginia. And they were created after uh, Brown v. Board II, 1955, when the court said you must move with all deliberate speed. Between 1956, at the time that the United States Congress supported the uh, Southern Manifesto, which was signed by over 100 members of Congress, most of them from the South, who said that an unelected judiciary, being the Supreme Court, cannot tell states what to do with education. Education is a state issue. And that led a movement, and the leader of that, one of them, was Senator Harry Byrd from Virginia. From 1956 through 1969, you had a number of states, Virginia being one of the leads, uh, that passed interposition and nullification laws, and then gave money to white families to create segregated private academies with the name of Robert E. Lee Academy and others. And so you have a generation of both whites and African-Americans in the legislature who remember that story. And they see charter schools as a way of continuing that, despite the fact that the 1964 Civil Rights Act was not in place when many of these schools started. The fact that we have the, um, the what we call the Powell Amendment or Title VII. There's so many state and federal rules and regulations in place that would have made uh, that type of activity in 1958 impossible in 2018, the narrative still sells. And so 
we ended up strengthening the law. And uh, today we have, you know, almost 10 charter schools. So it was a tough battle, but it was less about money. It was really about race and memory. And those are two tough things to overcome. In terms of victories, I think here are two. One is Governor McDonald said, listen, we can't wait until students are in high school to become interested in STEM. So we uh, passed a law in 2010 called the College uh, Laboratory Bill, or now law. And it allowed a public school, a public university school of education to partner with a local school district or two to create an innovative STEM-focused education or other. So the University of Virginia partnered, um, well, the University of Virginia School of Education, Curry School, the School of Engineering, and a local community college called Piedmont partnered with uh, Charlottesville, uh, Charlottesville Public School System to create a STEM-based program at Buford Middle School. Now, Buford Middle School is a place where I tutored when I lived in Charlottesville, Title I school, um, all, the, all the challenges, you know, that don't take place. Seven, seven years later, that school has an uptick in the number of middle-class families who are now putting their children in middle school in Charlottesville, where traditionally you kept them there for elementary, then you went private school. Number two, uh, they received over what, $2 million from the National Science Foundation. So here's a, you, you know, one of the top universities in the world wrapping its arm around a middle school and say, we're going to have our professors, teachers, student leaders work here. You know, that's a big victory uh, for those students and for that city. Another is one that wasn't on McDonald's uh, list. We became, we being Virginia, became the third state in the nation to have a Microsoft Academy program. And I worked with uh, some leaders from Microsoft and said, listen, let's be honest. There's certain sections in Virginia, southwestern part, where a lot of corporations are not going to move. We were able to, you know, uh, attract Rolls Royce. But we don't have a Rolls Royce plant in most, in most parts of Virginia. But what we can do is create entrepreneurs, making sure they're Microsoft certified, and they can work and do business with clients around the world. That was 2011. Fast forward to 2018, we have over 30,000 uh, current and former Virginia high school students who are Microsoft certified in the first international competition for Microsoft. The winner of their award was someone from Virginia. And you now have students who frankly created their own businesses. So those were two wins in Virginia and uh, pretty proud about both. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Can you talk a little bit about your goals in your current role as the executive director for the Center for Advancing Opportunity? And can you tell our listeners a little bit about this center um, and, and, and the things that you hope to do during your tenure here? The Center for Advancing Opportunity is a Washington, D.C.-based education and research initiative created through a partnership between the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, the Charles Koch Foundation, and Koch Industries. We were awarded January of 2017 $26 million to partner with HBCUs in particular, but other institutions as well, to create evidence-based solutions for challenges in education, criminal justice reform, and entrepreneurship. Now, what's important about that is the fact that we have, with Thurgood Marshall College Fund, 47 um, public historically black colleges and universities. Uh, we have, you know, more than 300,000 students who we serve. And many of our institutions, uh, you know, are over 80 years old. And so when we accepted the money, it didn't come without controversy. Uh, the Charles Koch Foundation, Koch Industries, tend to be known to be libertarian or at least right of center. 
uh, a number of our students and, and faculty likely are not uh, right of center for a host of reasons. But we were very clear that the money is going to be used to help create research centers on HBCUs to focus on one of the three areas. And if that's our focus, no one's telling us, you know, you've got to go this way, you've got to take this position. It's just not the case. So, you know, the goal is to do that. Uh, thus far, we have invested $3 million into Winston-Salem uh, Winston State University in North Carolina to create the Center for Economic Mobility. Uh, why that school? Uh, they've been there a very long time. Uh, they work in the community. But more importantly, uh, East Winston-Salem and Forsyth County, third poorest county in America. Now, initially, if you would raise the question, you would assume a place in Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, or Alabama. But low-income kids uh, in that uh, county are less likely than most children in the United States when they become adults to actually have the type of economic uh, support systems needed to be you know, mobile and to participate in our knowledge economy. Last month, in uh, January, we awarded a $2.7 million grant to Texas Southern University in Houston. It's the only special purpose university in the state of Texas. It's uh, in Houston. Uh, it's been there a long time. There are zip codes in Houston that frankly have become a pipeline for prisoners. And so there are already established scholars who are working on what we call front end work, asset forfeiture, uh, guns, prison, jail, and others. And so we made an investment there to create the Center for Justice. And uh, they will focus on that area. We've got a third school, uh, Albany State University in Georgia, and they will create a center to study education. So this is what we will continue to do, open centers for education, economic mobility, and criminal justice. It's anchored in HBCUs, again, for the reasons I mentioned, but their leadership is also, uh, have, you know, carte blanche to decide to partner with other institutions, HBCU and non-HBCU to get the work done. For me, it's frankly just to elevate the conversation. And as you know, having uh, come to our summit February 5th and 6th of, uh, of this year, is to really just drive the national conversation that people who live in what we call fragile communities aren't fragile by birth. The circumstances that they're in often put them there, but I believe that we can create a pathway from promise to prosperity. Where can people find more information about the summit? Is it Would it be on Gallup's, uh, the data that Gallup had compiled and that uh, the report that they compiled? We'll link it at the end of the podcast and we'll tweet out about it as well. But that was a phenomenal resource uh, that, that came out of the summit on fragile communities and uh, the, the role of education, entrepreneurship, and uh, criminal justice reform. Can you talk just a little bit about the entrepreneurship, uh, the work in entrepreneurship? You and I had met actually re at a conference at AEI on the intersection of education and entrepreneurship. We connected over, well, I came, I approached you over the our, our shared experience at Harvard. And, you know, I'm just very, very grateful that uh, I've been able to, you know, stay, uh, get, get exposure to the work that you've done and get these invites to these incredible opportunities, such as the summit, the most recent summit that you put together. Um, but can you talk a little bit about entrepreneurship? Why entrepreneurship um, in, in the work that you're doing here at the Center for Advancing Opportunity? What do you see in, in, that, in that space? Gallup, as you mentioned in, uh, in our conversation, is one of our other partners. 
And so we partnered with Gallup and they conducted a study with 6,230 people in 49 states and the nation's capital to ask questions about opportunity, barriers to it, and what could we and they do to change that. Well, entrepreneurship, in fact, was one of them. Um, you know, we know that right now that over the last 25 years, according to the uh, Kauffman Foundation, a lot of the new jobs that we have today in the economy are coming from entrepreneurs who created businesses and they're hiring people. We also know that over you know, the next 30 years that a number of new jobs will be created by startups. Uh, large corporations and small businesses will play a role, but it will also ultimately be the startups. So this, the entrepreneurship is not something that's new to people in fragile communities. Many of them have been entrepreneurs for years. The reality is there's been a gap between access to wealth, and so the centers will play a role in trying to better close the gap between having access to wealth, particularly women uh, who live, in, uh, who live in, these, uh, in these cities. Number two, we know that once you have started a business, you become much more involved in your community, not only hiring people, but also becoming a sponsor for the local schools. Uh, sporting a baseball, soccer team, or other sports teams. And third, you're more likely to be involved in uh, civic activities, uh, just not voting every two or four years uh, for someone uh, to go to Congress or to your state house or four years for the mayor or county's office, but to really be involved. But the reality is, why are people in fragile communities uh, often not starting businesses? Well, what we found from the report was, was pretty startling. Number one, 70% uh, of the people interviewed said we want to start a business, uh, but didn't do so. And when you ask why, the number one reason, health issues. Now, wow. I would have thought on gut it would have been money. Now, money was one Access of the top to five, people, yeah. but it was health. And so that speaks broadly about some other aspects. Number two, a number of them said we don't know anyone in our social network that we can walk to and borrow $500. So there's already just a... Uh, and access to social network capital, that's a challenge. And then third, if your health is great and if you happen to know someone with 500, I don't have the skills to start a business. I have the idea, but not the literacy. And it has less to do with the ability to read and write as much as knowing the, uh, the nuances of what it means to start a business. So what we want to do with the centers is to help close that uh, opportunity gap by creating more entrepreneurs who are literate, who have access to capital, and who can take care of their personal and professional lives. Thank you so much, Gerard. Um, a final question for you is, what advice do you have for our listeners? Now, our listeners are both Harvard alumni, but also those who don't have an affiliation with Harvard, a formal affiliation with Harvard University, but are interested in education and are interested in hearing from thought leaders such as yourself. So what advice do you have for our listeners who are interested in doing something in, in this field of education and are perhaps just getting started? I would say pick a topic that makes you cry. And here's why I say that. People who work in this, in any field, you can see, hear, feel the passion they have for it. Because at some point in doing what they do, there was a crying moment. And crying doesn't mean you're weak or soft or lost. It means you often have the epiphany to say, this is what I want to do. So for Hugsy grads, if you want to go into policy, find an aspect of public policy that makes sense to you. It can be K-12 or higher ed, or you can create um, you know, after-school programs. If you're interested in teaching and instruction, find a niche there, particularly the role that technology uh, will play in it. If you're interested in alternative education, there are a number of... Uh, 
Hugsy, uh, uh, part of the alumni network, who started, you know, private schools, nonprofit schools, online schools, to find something that you will want to wake up 50 years from now and say, you know what, that was a good cry, and this is what I want to do. For those who are affiliated with Harvard but not from the ed school, there are a number of things you can do. First of all, I'd say at the local level, run for school board. You know, one way you can have an impact is by actually being part of the electoral process. Number two, if you don't want to run, if you're in a city like Chicago or other places where you have an appointed board, um, make friends with the appointment committee and say, I'd like to, you know, find myself appointed to a board, particularly those who have, you know, are pretty savvy about, uh, about, about finances and, and understand how to work budgets. Uh, third is to go to your local school board meeting at least once every school semester. You'd be surprised how much you would learn from the school boards and what they do, but you're going to also walk away saying, then why aren't we doing thus and so? Well, then that will require you to then go to the webpage, take a look at the budget. Just walk through the budget. It's, you know, uh, it's maybe long, but you can walk through. You'll see where we're spending our money and where we're not. I can tell you money matters in education. If someone tells you money uh, does not matter, tell them to give you your money or their money, and then we'll see how much it doesn't matter. So this isn't a revenue problem almost as much as it is as expenditure and revenue problem. Uh, last thing is to uh, go to your local school, public, private, or otherwise, and just do, here's my career for a day talk. You know, I am a thus and so, and here's how I got started. You can't be what you can't see, and so people need to see you and hear your story. I can remember in eighth, in eighth grade seeing um, an African-American man, in fact, he played basketball with John Wood at UCLA, and he was our eighth grade uh, sports speaker. And I can just remember seeing how I want to use the term articulate, but poised, confident, smart, dressed well. And I said, wow, maybe one day I can be like him. And uh, I'm a first generation college student. And so you never know the impact that you have. And then lastly, you can always invest money into nonprofit organizations and, uh, you know, support my friend Vanessa over here with the work she's doing through her organization. Thank you so much, Gerard. Um, I also want to thank you for giving our SIG the inspiration to partner with Living Classrooms, a nonprofit in Baltimore, as well as uh, the Harvard Club of Washington, D.C., where we're going to be doing a joint volunteer effort uh, starting in a couple of weeks, actually. And it'll be a monthly volunteer effort where we partner with a group of citizens who are returning to society. Uh, and we will go out into the community in Baltimore and volunteer together on a monthly basis. So thank you for being the inspiration for that volunteer effort. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak uh, with us today and to share your experience, your thoughts, your wisdom, and your encouragement to those who want to go out there and make a difference in our world. Glad to be of service. And Gerard, where can our listeners find your organization, uh, both the website and Twitter handle? Advancingopportunity.org is our webpage. You can find information about the organization, but you can also uh, find link, a link to the uh, Gallup report and pictures from our uh, summit. Number two, uh, Advancing Ops is our um, Twitter account. And since I'm trying to build my Twitter numbers to try to catch up with Vanessa, I'm at uh, Gerard, G-E-R-A-R-D underscore 924, Gerard underscore 924. Great. And we'll post all those links as well in the notes to today's podcast. Thanks so much for listening.